0: Ah, uh, the weekend and plenty on the radio to catch your ear. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran, and here's what you might have missed.
1: You have to be determined, no matter what field you enter into, not to let individuals grind you down. That's, the, that's really the only lesson I can learn so far at the age of 50. Just don't give up. Keep going.
2: I consider myself a heavy drinker, alcoholic in brackets, because now I'm in my late 60s. I'm able to afford... Uh, four cans of cider and a bottle of wine seven days a week
3: at the moment. It's interesting that the relationship between Collins and Dev in particular is is collapsing, but at the same time both men are, are trying to make, you know, efforts to, to not let it go too far. And, and Collins in particular, after the vote, uh, Dev Valera says, well, I think maybe I should, I should resign now. And Collins says, no, no, don't do that.
0: Well, the day began with Morning Ireland marking the ratification of the Anglo-Irish Treaty 100 years ago in the Dáil. Here's Gavin Jennings.
4: 100 years ago today, the Dáil voted to ratify the Anglo-Irish Treaty. After a passionate, sometimes ill-tempered debate lasting three weeks, the vote in favour was extraordinarily close. 64 votes to 57. The vote paved the way for the new Irish government to take power from the British, but also set in motion the events that led to civil war in six months. Our editor of the Decade of Centenaries, Shane McElhatton, is on location for us once again from where it all happened. Shane, it seems like only a few days ago since you were talking to us from London to mark the centenary of the signing of the treaty.
5: Good morning, Gavin. Yes, as you say, in fact, it was nearly a month ago uh, to mark this. Uh, we were in London to mark the centenary of the signing of the treaty, but events moved very fast. The focus shifted to Doyle Erin, even though the British didn't regard the Doyle as the official body to approve the treaty. That didn't really matter. Realistically, nothing was going to happen to implement the measures in the treaty without that vote. We're here in what is now the National Concert Hall in Earlsford Terrace in Dublin, which 100 years ago was University College Dublin and the temporary home of Doyle Aron. It was here on Saturday, January 7th, 1922, that Doyle voted to ratify the treaty. The margin, as you said, was tiny, so tiny that four TDs changing their votes would have meant rejection of the treaty, with consequences nobody could have predicted. Events moved very fast. I I keep being reminded of uh, Vladimir Lenin's observation that there are decades where nothing happens and then there are weeks when decades happen. The speed of events. The very next weekend after the vote, Michael Collins was leading a delegation into Dublin Castle. The torch of authority was passed to him by the British Lord Lieutenant and the provisional government was in power. Why was the doll in those temporary surroundings? Well because, believe it or not, the round room at the Mansion House, the usual setting for Doyle Votes at the time, was booked for the annual Christmas Fair. You might think, given the unprecedented events unfolding at the time, that that might have been moved aside to let the Doyles hit, but Christmas was Christmas even then. The council chamber of UCD, now the Kevin Barry Recital Room, became the setting for the debate. The truth be told now, nobody was actually impressed with the new venue. It was too small, very hard to hear what was being said, and. Some people said they couldn't even see who was speaking. And the huge public interest meant the place was jammed always and the journalists complained. They kept finding people sitting in their seats, their reserved seating.
0: Then later, Shane McElhatton and guests were discussing the events of this day 100 years ago in the National Concert Hall.
5: Uh, Once again, in our series of commemorations of the centenaries of the key events, the struggle for independence, we are where it all happened. This time we're in the National Concert Hall, formerly the main building of University College Dublin, which provided the setting for the debates on the Anglo Irish Treaty, debates that 100 years ago today culminated in unprecedented scenes of emotion and anger here as the treaty was ratified by the tiniest of margins 64 votes to 57. Students of parliamentary mathematics will see that just four TDs changing their minds would have seen the treaty rejected. In this building, a few yards from where, from where we are sitting, the Republican movement was irrevocably split in the moments after the vote. Eamon de Valera resigned as President of the Republic, a republic now, as he and his supporters saw it, consigned to oblivion. He was so overcome by the enormity of the moment, he actually broke down in tears while trying to have the last word. He left the chamber, followed by all the TDs who voted against the treaty. He would have walked past us down the stairs here, leaving Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith to pick up the reins of government. Within six months, the fledging state would be fighting for its survival in civil war. I'm joined here in the National Concert Hall by historian Dr Jennifer Redmond, assistant professor of 20th century Irish history at Maynooth University, and by Michal fardig who, along with Liam Weeks, has edited and authored two recent important books on the treaty, The Treaty and Birth of a State. Apparently, we've been having listeners coming in asking us the names. It's The Treaty and Birth of a State. Uh, may, um, Michal, could you set the scene for us um, in the the lead up to the actual debates?
3: Yes. uh, So, Shane, everything had happened with incredible haste, considering that we as a nation have been waiting for the better part of eight centuries for independence the final act passed through very, very, very quickly. You could even argue with indecent haste. The negotiations themselves began on the 11th of October. They were concluded on the 6th of December. Then we had between that point and the 7th of January, we had 15 days of debate, 440,000 words spoken, and then everything was done undusted on this epoch of Irish history.
5: Jennifer what was the mood like um as the debate began because we could if we looked out the doors here we would have seen crowds of people every day hanging on every word
6: yes um obviously it's an understatement to say it was tense uh, the sense of anticipation the sense of dread i would say from some quarters who had experienced two years of terror violence um their homes disturbed. The crowds pictured uh, in our wonderful pictures that we have from the era show um, children in the audience, which I think is remarkable. Uh, They're not even listening to the debates, they're outside the debates. They just are there, uh, I guess, as as future citizens. There had been a stress actually in the revolutionary period on youth as future citizens. So I guess they were more politically knowledgeable perhaps than uh, other generations. Obviously, though, I think it's really important to stress that whenever anybody came out, people were hanging for any kind of word or update that they could get because this meant something to everybody, no matter what side you were on of the treaty. Shane McElhatton from Morning
0: Ireland. Then later, Claire Byrne was also marking the event with David McCullough. Late on the
7: night of January the seventh, nineteen twenty-two, this was a month after impassioned debates. The members of the Second Dáil voted on whether or not to ratify the Anglo-Irish Treaty. It was a peace deal negotiated with the British government. Broadcast precisely one hundred years on from the actual vote, Treaty Live will unpack and explain this co- complex but crucial period in our history. And I'm joined now by David McCullough, who will be presenting the Treaty Live tonight, RT One at seven o'clock. You're very welcome. Thanks, Thanks for being there. here. So. Give Give us an idea what tonight's show will be about what it will look like
3: Well it, it will look like a modern day contemporary current affairs programme like Primetime Clareburn Live uh, or whatever But it's dealing with something that happened 100 years ago. So if primetime was around 100 years ago, this is what it might have looked like. And the idea behind it is to try and get behind, like, a lot of times when we talk about history, I mean, we know what happened, we know the end result, Mm -hmm. which is not how it appeared to people at the time. So it's trying to get viewers back into how it would have felt on that night 100 years ago, exactly, as they waited for news from uh, Earlsford Terrace about what was going to happen with the treaty, because nobody knew at the time what was going to happen. It was too close to call, despite... All the public support uh, and the support of the establishment in favour of the treaty. Nobody knew which way the vote was going so to go. You're, and
7: you're asking us to d- suspend our knowledge.
3: We are asking the viewer to take part in the conceit, uh, and so it does uh, require a little bit of work on the on the part of the viewer. It certainly required a lot of work on the part of our panelists who had to get who are historians and and uh, political scientists and journalists who had to get into the mindset that they're waiting for the results. Forget you
7: know your history, right? Yeah, oh, that's what you said and, and, to them. and
3: and and they had to get into this conceit, and they had to. Uh, you know kind of get behind it and in fairness to them they all got into it uh, to the extent that at times I'm afraid I had to intervene to uh, stop them having rows about it but um, the idea is to try and get a, get a sense of the drama because this really was a knife-edge vote and to explain to people the reasons why it was a knife-edge vote the arguments for and against the treaty why it was important what the potential consequences were if it was passed or if it was rejected, and obviously, um, the, you know, we, we are we are talking about it, knowing what happened, mm-hmm. but at the same time trying to give it give that sense of of, of uh, tension.
7: Yeah, and you you spoke about that and the vibe in the country, and you know how people were seeing this unfold. What was the what was the feeling, the sense as people as this debate was ongoing outside?
3: Uh, well, unfortunately, we, they didn't have Twitter at the time, so ah. we just have to uh, make do with what we can from the newspapers. Now, there seems to have been overwhelming public support for the treaty, not because it was a deal that that a lot of people liked particularly but because they felt it was the best deal mm-hmm. on offer uh, that there wasn't really any alternative and the reason i say that the newspapers were were solidly in favor uh, of the treaty the churches were in favor of the treaty business organizations chambers of commerce all that sort of stuff now you could take uh, opponents of the treaty would say that's the establishment ganging up uh, and being pro british and everything but what's really interesting is there was a break for Christmas, the debates ended just before Christmas, the TDs went home to their constituencies and they got it by the year full in no uncertain terms from their constituencies that they were tired of war, they were tired of fighting, they wanted to grab this opportunity for peace and the potential for developing uh, towards uh, complete Irish independence. They wanted to take that opportunity and a number of TDs came back after the Christmas break and said, look, I had been going to vote against this thing. But having listened to the people, I have no option but to vote in favour.
7: Interesting. So all eyes were on Earlsford Terrace. And Earlsford Terrace,
3: uh, people might wonder, wait a minute, what happened to the Mansion House? Mm -hmm. Uh, Which is where most of the meetings of the Doll happened. They couldn't use the room in the Mansion House because it was booked for a Christmas fair. Okay, so everybody was toddling along to the Mansion House to buy their Christmas presents or whatever, and the doll had to tre- schlep up to uh, UCD, which was in Earl'sford Terrace at the time, in a room called the Council Chamber. Now I was in there doing some filming yesterday for uh, a, a piece for the for the Six One tonight. The Council Chamber, it's it, it the ceiling is quite low, the acoustics aren't great, so. A lot of the people that were uh, there as observers in the public gallery uh, or, or as, 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 as members of the public and journalists couldn't hear what was being said. Okay. It's also a very long and very narrow room. There's sort of uh, part- you can close off uh, par- uh, sliding doors and, and so on. So there's, there's uh, partitions in, in the way. A lot of the people there couldn't see who was speaking either. So if that's a metaphor for the treaty debate, I don't think you could get one that was better.
0: So David spoke about some of the highlights of the debates.
3: It starts with De Valera uh, speaking in Irish and saying, uh, I'm, I'm afraid I don't, my Irish isn't good enough to continue, Oscar right the right way through. And then he switches to English and he says, I believe some members of the Dáil don't have Irish good enough to follow the debate, so I'll continue in English. Right.
5: So, <laughs> so uh,
3: a little joke. But it, 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 it's absolutely fascinating. It goes on for, um, uh, what was it, eight days, in December five days in January De Valera is really interesting he's really really impassioned Michael Collins setting out the argument that this isn't the freedom we want but it is the freedom to achieve freedom a fascinating speech uh, uh, brilliant speech Mary McSweeney very very interesting the sister of of Terence McSweeney an absolutely uncompromising Republican as she remained uh, for the rest of her days she spoke really passionately really forcefully and at great length two hours and 40 minutes uh, one of her contributions went on for uh, which possibly uh, Cost more votes than, than it gained, but. Presenting her view, and it's a legitimate view to have had at the time, with absolute clarity, precision, and passion. You have people like uh, W. T. Cosgrave who actually yeah, managed to did. lighten the, the mood by uh, cracking a few jokes. Yeah, yeah just I
7: expensive. mean, it, it, should a speech ever be two hours and forty minutes long? Well, uh, it, it
3: could possibly have done with some sobbing, all right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> then you have uh, you have the likes of Liam Mellows, uh, who is approaching things. For, he's he's uh, developing into a socialist viewpoint, a very interesting, uh, different uh, view of of the whole thing of imperialism, of capitalism and everything. Um, Arthur Griffith uh, really, really strong um, but presenting his, his argument in a, in a calm way but with passion underneath and when he gets uh, uh, interruptions from Erskine Childers he turns around and says I won't be lectured by any damned Englishman. So you can see that the tensions yeah. are rising. Karl Brewer, that Viscerating speech um, against just just against Michael Collins and all the jealousy and bitterness that have built up between them over the previous years comes out on the on the floor of the doll. and it, it's just amazing stuff. And as I say, you can you, anybody can can look these up mm-hmm. on the Rocker's website and read them. They're fascinating reading.
7: And what was the tenor of the debate between? Dev and Michael Collins because we've been speaking a lot about the discussions in London up to this point and you know that old chestnut about Dev deciding not to be Mm. there and whether he should have been there or Mm. not and Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith taking the lead so when they came back to to debate this what was that like between them?
3: Uh, There was uh, I I think nowadays you would say there was a bit of needle uh, it would be fair to say and and that thing about Dev not going uh, was thrown at him uh, during the course of the debate and he not unreasonably replied yes, but I would have gone over except you gave me an explicit conf- uh, promise at the uh, cabinet meeting before the, you signed the treaty that you wouldn't sign anything without coming back.
7: Mm-hmm.
3: So he he had a certain amount of right on, on his side But as then well, the
7: counter-argument to that is that they were under so much yes, pressure, exactly. pressure and the threat and of war in three days yeah. and so yeah. on.
3: All, all of that. So um, it, it, it's interesting that the relationship between Collins and Dev in particular is, is collapsing, but at the same time, both men are, are trying to make... You know efforts to 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 not let it go too far, and and Collins in particular after the vote, uh, De Valera says, well, I think maybe I should I should resign now. And Collins says, no, no, don't do that. Wait, and mm-hmm. says, uh, I I hold you in in as high a regard as I ever did.
0: And if you missed it, Treaty Live will be available on the RTE player. David McCullough from today with Claire Byrne. And standing in for Ryan, Baz Ashmawi was very excited to be talking to actor Dervla Kerwin about Ballycus Angel*, *Smother*, and those *M&S* ads.
8: Do you know what? I I am very excited. I'm very. I'm a, ah. I I I watched the the episode last night. I, I, I also yeah. can't believe you're the voice on those *M&S*, uh, M&S ads. Well, uh, uh, well, yeah, for many many years.
1: So uh, I was very, very lucky during the, the quiet years of one's
8: career, let's put it that way. But you, they're, they're so uh, they're so saucy. All that, they aren't just grapes. They're they're sexy, tooty, fruity, and, and you know, all the battered doesn't, cod. It doesn't
1: which, quite work when you're promoting Colin the Caterpillars,
8: though. <laughs> well, I'm sure you could do it. If anyone could, you could. But listen, that that aside, what what was it about Smother that makes it the role of your career today? Why did you feel like that?
1: Well, I suppose. I mean, I, I'm I'm a 50 year old woman, and here at last was a, a substantial, fully formed, beautifully written by our writer Kate Reardon, female lead uh, that was complex and uh, not two dimensional and really intriguing, and a woman who was full of secrets, secrets that she could justify that um, are acting really like a cancer upon her family and. I really like the fact that here we're presenting a you know a very affluent Irish family, but that are steeped in, in dysfunctionality, which I think an awful lot of people, having gone through Christmas with their in-laws, and their own family, <laughs> might be able to relate to. Absolutely, so, uh, that, that's why it's a great part. It's just, but um, I have it, to
8: say, from 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 watching it, it's. Yeah. I, I mean this with the most respect. It's. It's very impressive how beautifully shot it is, how unbelievably yeah. well written these female characters are in it. It's yeah. I was I was um, pleasantly surprised how really good it was for yeah. I, and I don't not... I know it's just automatic to think, oh, it you know it'll, it'll look like this I or it'll sound like this, but it wasn't. It's a but really could... really good show. But
1: Baz, that's because you know we have so much talent in Ireland in front of the screen and behind us. And that's what we sh- must now aim to showcase to the world. That's the standard that's out there. Absolutely. So anyone who's sort of sitting there thinking of their leaving search this year or what they want to do, don't be put off by the film industry. Don't be put off by an acting career or a writing career. Go for it. Because we've seen an exponential, um, an exponential explosion, if you like, of... of um, subjects and platforms for TV, so it's a golden era. So uh, don't don't think it's just like a middle class pursuit. It's for everyone. But and you that, know yourself when, really you're a, when you're
8: when you're creative and and you look into the arts. You know, like like I just think it's fantastic. Like I've I daughters and and you know they'd like yes. to get into um in, in into a creative um uh, career and yes. for them to see for them to look up and and to see um quality and characters and shows in Ireland um like yes. this. I think is amazing. You must have faced though. You must have faced serious challenges. In a kind of uh, previously quite male-dominated industry, that is um, film and television, traditionally.
1: Sure, but I'm I'm as stubborn as a mute. and <laughs> I, I really am. And I think uh, perseverance is a great quality that I have. I just you must never give up. You can diversify, and you but you you must never give up. And it's not that I had a dream. It's it wasn't as. Um, uh, it's so it's so complicated. I was just determined. You have to be determined, no matter what field you enter into, not to let individuals grind you down. That's that's really the only sort of lesson I can learn so far at the age of 50. Just don't give up. Keep going.
0: And Bazd asked Derva about turning 50.
1: Um, I feel like I've survived a lot, but I also, like, I'm not dead yet. I mean, I've got plenty of. Plenty of more years ahead of me.
8: Oh, I don't um, doubt it. And, and
1: I've loads of, you know, I've loads of ambition and drive and hunger and curiosity. But I do. I personally have found that this period, you know, the pandemic, I found it very difficult to keep my joy. And I, I'm sure there must be lots of people listening to your show who would identify with that. And uh, and that's a battle, you know, to find your happiness, to keep your gratitude. And and to to keep it real, that is difficult. Actually, where where do you and retreat you know, to? You know. There's, where, there's not a lot to be happy
8: about. Where do you retreat to Dervla? Because, cause, uh, you know, you're on camera, you're, you know, you're uh, this kind of big star. And then where do you go to? Is it family life? For me, it's family. I, I, I slip back into my family. And I'm below average. Uh, I'm of a very low stature in my family. So, it, but family life kind of brings me back to a real sense yeah, of a zen I- and normality, you know?
1: Yeah, and, uh, but I mean, equally, you have a very high-powered job in that you have to be on every day and every moment. You have to be very careful how you, you speak. It's very exhausting what you do. And uh, I love going home and closing the front door and just having a dose of reality where nobody gives a damn about who I am. And quite frankly, neither do I. I it's not, I love work. Hmm. But I'm not seduced by status at all because yeah. that is taken away in the blink of an eye. Absolutely, you know. So, so I think that's that's what I've learned. And, and what is
8: what is family? Because in the show, you're this matriarch, this this you're this amazing kind of female character at yes. home. Are you? I'm, are you like I'm, that? <laughs> are you? I are, am
1: so removed. Oh. I can assure you, with two teenagers, uh, the dog is the only person who respects me in my house, and uh, and. Uh, But I have a good relationship with everyone and we do get on. But I think we're all sick of the sight of each other now after Christmas. we're all We're all desperate to get back to work.
8: I know, I know. back to school. You seem to enjoy working on the kind of psychological thrillers, do you? Do you like that? I do.
1: I've always loved trying to understand the human heart. I think that's what's really motivated me. And I love that ability. Certainly, you know, when you go and do a play and you sit down for a week or two and you forensically a script, And I still get to do that in TV uh, because usually, you know, the writers around, you can pick up the phone, you can ask them questions about scenes. And also, I'm still excited about working with other actors. I'm still wanting to know what their process is and how they reach, say, an emotional state and, and consistently reach that in a scene. And uh, I've been watching loads of TV over this time, uh, a great show uh, like, you know, um, Mayor of East Ham. Which oh, fantastic yeah, yeah with fantastic. And, and also Your Honor with Brian Cranston, you know, a, a, a wonderful, wonderful show written, uh, sort of devised by Peter Moffat. So there's great stuff out there. And for people, again, who want to learn, that's the best. Go for the best of the best. You know, watch what's being made and being produced, and and aim for it.
8: Yeah.
0: And for the day that's in it, the anniversary of the treaty boat in the Doyle, Baz had to ask. Uh,
8: I I have to ask it. Are you related? Were you related to Michael Collins? Is that right? I Did am. I re- yeah. I,
1: yeah, I am. I, he. I think he's my. <laughs> I always get this wrong. Uh, my great great grand uncle. Uh, so yeah, very, very close. <laughs> very very close. If you know what I mean.
8: And I'm very proud of that connection. That's, so, that's a big one. That's a big one. And tell yeah. me this, where is family life now? You're in the UK. Are you, are you based there? I'm in
1: the UK. I, I moved out of London in 2008 to bring my kids up in the countryside. And uh, we live, you know, a, a pretty, I have to say, I turned to my husband the other day and I said, you know, the pandemic, we, we've been living like we're in a pandemic for the past 10 years. You know, very, very isolated, uh, very low-key life. You know, we love we love the countryside. And we, I love nature and I love the animals and the kids, and I just like getting on with it.
8: Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I'm sorry, I have so many questions in the back of my head. But go, just quick. Was, was Bally Cass Angel a big turning point in your in your career?
1: I think actually, it, well, it was compounded by the fact that I'd had a, a very big success with a comedy show, Goodnight Sweetheart, which was
5: brilliant. And then back oh God, in the day, yeah.
1: yeah, but back in the day, we were getting 13 million, 14 million viewers. So that was sort of the double whammy. That's what, sort of what sealed it, because I was playing two very different characters. And, you know, it was it was back in the day where you could sit down and find a show. Like, I'm, what I'm finding very difficult at the moment with my family is we want to watch a film or we want to watch a show, but there's nothing really that we can all watch that's kind of suitable. Um, but so I guess Ballet Angel uh, absolutely... Uh, was that family entertainment show.
0: Dervil Kerwin with Bazaj Maui in the morning. And in the morning, Gavin Jennings was talking to Professor Ross Morgan about the current surge of COVID-19.
4: Let's talk now with Professor Ross Morgan. He's a consultant in respiratory medicine at Beaumont Hospital in Dublin. Professor Morgan, good morning. Thanks for taking our call today. Good morning, Gavin. Tell us about what you're seeing in Beaumont at the moment.
9: Well, I suppose, um, probably reflected around the country, at this time of the year, we see a lot of respiratory um, presentations to our emergency departments. Uh, A lot of the time, this is decompensation or acute attacks of of lung disease that people have, underlying lung conditions like COPD, asthma, um, and others, pulmonary fibrosis. Um, uh, To that, we add uh, at the moment, this uh, current viral pandemic issue, um, which obviously adds an, an extra burden um, and the, the context then of, as you alluded to there, of, of staffing issues uh, makes that particularly challenging. Tell us about what COVID does to the lungs. Well, we know a lot about it now, as, as you can imagine, uh, Gavin, over the last few years. The good news is it depends on whether you're vaccinated or not as to the degree of severity of this injury, as we all know. Um, for those who are unvaccinated, this current uh, wave, if you like, or current virus, Uh, seems to be somewhat less uh, likely to get down into the lungs but when it does it does the exact same as it did to your lungs back in march of 2020 and april of 2020 or january of uh, 2021 a year ago uh, it causes severe lung injury oxygenation impairment breathlessness and for many people unfortunately respiratory failure which means that you need high levels of respiratory support and for many then of those patients into the intensive care unit. What does Omicron do compared to previous variants to the lungs? Yeah well it's we're, it's, a, it's probably a, a, the, the, the date on this I suppose is a, is, a, is a little premature yet but it's fair to say that if we look across uh, where it has been more prevalent for periods for example South Africa that the evidence would suggest that it's predominantly, or it, it's, a, it's a very, as we know, uh, infectious agent, so we can get around the place easily. Um, it tends to be uh, focused more in the upper part of the respiratory tract, from my perspective, um, but it will go down to the lower respiratory tract and cause injury. I suppose the caveats on that, Gavin, are that uh, it, there's a, a large group of patients at this point who have many, thankfully, in this country are vaccinated, which is fantastic. Um, and then there are people who have had the condition before, so it's very hard to compare. I suppose during this time last year, when nobody yes. had really nobody had a vaccine, to now, um, so it's 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 hard to know for certain on that. We are still seeing patients who come in, and principally they are unvaccinated or people who have underlying health conditions perhaps they're on medication that lowers their immune system, knocks out the, 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 the big parts of the immune system, that memory cells and other parts of the uh, immune system that, uh, that, that, that keep you well and protect you from these types of viruses. Um, we all, I think, at this point have had a uh, personal or um, family experience of, of this virus from the perspective of the mild elements. But people, when you, when you see numbers that are in hospital, there isn't anyone really in hospital with mild. COVID related disease. Certainly if they've come in for that purpose. So patients seen who have COVID, uh, who have other conditions and perhaps are in for that primarily given the the the, the high rates of, of the uh, virus in the community. Um, are, you are you seeing young injury. people,
4: Professor Morgan, young people who wouldn't have previously been sick or had reason to be sick uh, coming we're into still, hospital we're still with seeing of
9: the thankfully not in the same numbers as before um, so um, and and I would credit principally the vaccine on that, and uh, it may be, as I said, that the um, uh, and certainly uh, there's there's plausibility from the perspective of what we know about this virus biologically that it may not be as severe, and 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 that's good to know. Um, but that's not to say that it's uh, uh, it, it it can't also. Was significant injury, and for 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 indeed for young people, given the volume, as you know, as you hear from the numbers, and and we know that they are probably a, a significant underestimation, given uh, the limitations on testing over, particularly the last two weeks. Uh, given the numbers, um, you can always expect a, a percentage, even if it's a smaller percentage, it's still a number. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we do see young people um, coming into hospital who are very sick with COVID still. Uh, and they are uh, in the category of unvaccinated.
0: Professor Ross Morgan from Morning Ireland with Gavin Jennings. And in the morning, Bazaj Mawi was talking to historian Dr. Kieran McCarthy about the Barrack Street Six.
8: The skeletal remains of six people uh, were found at a site of a former pub in Cork City in early October, and of all the makings of a medieval mystery. I want to find out more. Only one man to talk to, Ciaran McCarty. How are you, Ciaran?
10: I'm good, Baz. How are you doing? Happy New Year to Uh, you. The same to you from
8: Cork. Thank you very much. The same to you, Ciaran. What what do you do exactly?
10: Oh, I'm a local historian, but I'm also an independent councillor. But I spend most of my time, I suppose, working from the past. I suppose, going through archives and kind of trying to research historic maps and kind of street directories of Cork and giving walking tours and, I don't know, trying to get under the skin of the city and trying to figure out its kind of sense of place. Like Cork, Cork, as you know, like there's a great sense of fun in Cork. And it's got a huge sense of place. And people of Cork are very proud as well. Um, even on the electric car that you talked about yesterday. Uh, we're very, very proud. Um, and so, this, yeah, this story, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's... You must really, have got really very
8: excited sure. when you heard about this.
10: Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, six skeletons underneath floorboards. I mean, the the building itself is uh, Nancy Spain's pub. Um, So Cork City Council are doing a social housing project um, on this site at the moment. Um, And so basically when they basically took up the floorboards and went down to the foundations, they took down the building, went down to the foundations, they found six skeletons.
8: When was Uh, this?
10: This was actually in October of last year. Right. So there's kind of ongoing excavation work at the moment. Um, and at the time, there was huge excitement. But I mean, the excitement seems to have gone on like for, for months on end now, actually, into, into the new year as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, six skeletons, you'd, you'd say one skeleton, maybe somebody was murdered. And maybe two skeletons, you'd say maybe they were star-crossed lovers or something. Yeah. But six is something entirely different. It's very,
8: it seems quite dark, doesn't it? Do, do we know when they're from?
10: Um, Well, we know the buildings, I suppose the Nancy Spain building that was taken down, I suppose, was constructed early 1700s. So they're from before that. So I think the argument given by um, the city archaeologist who works for Cork City Council, Kira Brett, who does a fantastic job, is that they are probably somewhere in the 1600s. So there's something belonging to the walled town of Cork. So when Cork kind of had a, when I suppose only were a walled town, a walled city. So paint me Um, a
8: picture. It was a walled city.
10: Um, so basically, if you if you know Cork, like we say, South Main Street and North Main Street were the two old medieval streets, yeah. and, and around those two streets there was a, a town wall. So if you're I if you're unfamiliar with Cork history, um, like the city is built in the middle of a swamp. So, like the name Cork in Irish is Corkig, which means marshes. And um, so, mo- all of Cork city centre is built on a swamp. So, basically, the Anglo-Normans when they came in in I would say late, late 1100s, they bi- basically built a walled town, which lasted for 500 years. Um, and to get access to the walled town, there were Drawbridges to get onto the swamp, and then you you leave your weapons at the gate. And then we had these approach roads as well that were policed. So Barrack Street would have began its life as a as a road going in from the southern side of the city. Uh, and actually, one of the things that the I suppose the English administration did in the early 1600s was to plant a huge star-shaped fort just next to Barrack Street. So if you are walking down the streets. Like you were policed. I mean, like you were. Right. Your, your weapons were checked. Like even before you got to the main gate of Southgate Drawbridge.
0: So, what does Kieran think happened to the six?
10: Um, we have all maps, all historical accounts from 1600s and 1700s saying that there were six cemeteries in the local area. Wow. So, I mean, the people chose not to bury the six people in the cemetery. In the,
8: was in the was there? Cemetery. Oh, there was. There was executions at that time, of course. You know.
10: Yeah, just up the road as well. We had the, I, I suppose, one of the the southern. And Side of the Walltown execution site Gallows Green which kind of began its work in late 1600s um, and we know that actually in the, in the 1990s somebody was extending their back garden in the area of Gallows Green and they actually came down on top of the pit of skeletons with broken neck bones and things like that so yeah there is a hypothesis that perhaps that they were associated the six were actually maybe associated with Gallows Green or they were they were hanged in Gallows Green and actually ended up being buried on Barrack Street um, and as I said, the other hypothesis then is is that they were involved in some. They got. They were unfortunately caught in crossfire, perhaps when Elizabeth Fort was attacked around 16. In 1690, the fort actually was attacked by supporters of the Catholic King James II, um, and so they might have been caught in that crossfire as well. Um, but we'll never know. I mean, what's interesting is that I mean that the skeletons are still being excavated. But, I mean, they're. They're. I mean, the, the report hasn't come out on them yet, so I'm. I'm hoping like that with the report will come. Something like next to the next to these skeletons, we found uh, swords or musket yeah. guns or, or armor or something like that.
8: It's uh, amazing. And it would would you ever kind of in the back of your head think, well, God, that was under there. I wonder, <laughs> would there be is there more to be uncovered <laughs> under other houses there? You know,
10: yeah. I, I well, I don't know. I think I mean six people. It's had a lot. Well place put together. Yeah, it seems a bit of a setup, to be honest. In terms of these six people were buried there on purpose. It's not just one random person. This is just six people, like who are lined up uh, like a family. Um, yeah, and I mean, we haven't got the ages of the skeletons yet. Um, I mean, I think they were known to be maybe six adults. Um, but yeah, I mean, one could say if you own a, a business on Barrack Street and you've ever done foundational work, yeah, be careful what's beneath your floorboards.
0: Dr. Kieran McCarthy talking to as Ashmawi. And in the afternoon, cut-price alcohol will not be available in this country anymore. Katie Hannan was taking a look at the issue in the afternoon.
11: Now, minimum unit pricing uh, was introduced this week. You um, may be aware of this if you've been in your supermarket drinks aisles. Um, it basically means that the cheapest alcohol, uh, which and indeed big those big alcohol promotions where you get uh, slabs of beers or, or boxes of beer uh, at a major discount, that's now gone, that's now illegal. And the cheapest alcohol is now going to cost significantly more. Dennis Boyle, good afternoon to you good morning Katie' or should I say good afternoon Katie, good how are you good afternoon you uh d- got ahead of the the minimum unit pricing
12: i did i went and uh I just filled up my trolley with a a year's supply of beer just to you kind know, of counteract the extortionate rate that the government are after introducing yeah
11: and uh do you mind me asking what a year's supply of beer looks like
12: can you fit it into uh, the one I'm trolley six foot <laughs> I'm six foot tall and it's up my height anyway, and about the same in width. And uh, I have a load of beer and about 300 cans and bottles of pills and just stocked up plenty of beer for me.
11: And how much money do you reckon that saved you?
12: About 200 euros, I estimated that.
11: Right. So, you well, you did. You obviously bought a significant uh, amount of beer. Where, where did you go for that?
12: <laughs> I went to my local Aldi store because I like their, um, their brand of uh, French lager.
11: Right uh, Were you on your own there? Did you see a lot of other people with their trolleys filling I
12: was, you know, I'd was. say there was one or two other people kind of copped it but um, I don't think anyone else kind of made the strategic plan to take seats out of the car and you know yourself prepare did themselves you, to go down and actually you, load the whole car up Did you take the seats out of the car? Oh I put them all down you know you can put them down actually have a key of seat and you can drop them all down to like a van in the back Right so I kind of prepared myself first because I kind of, I like to pre-plan these things rather than go down trying to, you know, like you see the great hon up with one bag and he's got four bags worth of shopping trying to figure out, you know.
11: I know. And so I
12: filled the trolley up and I got a uh, actually, a friend of mine had to give me a hand to wheel it out because I didn't realise it overloaded the trolley. But um, we got it into the car anyway and I got it home. But uh, yeah, that was my walk out for the day, no bringing in those slabs of cans, yeah.
11: And did you also go to Newry?
12: No, I haven't gone to Newry. I'm planning on going to Newry, but not, not at the moment. But like your friend of mine has a, I think it's a sea life or something like that. We're hiring a van and we're heading up there and the next month there's four of us going up for the weekend and we'll do our uh, summer beer running, you know.
11: Right. Some people now might be wondering your situation. If your, 300, if your entire car with seats taken out full of beer isn't enough for you that you're going to be going to Newry
12: again? Next month. Oh, no, uh, look, 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 uh, Katie. As you can imagine, though, like um, there's different brands of beer and different kind of things. And so, look, we, we're just planning these things, you know. I mean, at the end of the day, my motto is not going to get another euro to me. So doesn't bother me,
0: you know. And then later, Niall called Katie.
13: Well, I think, I think first and foremost, I'd say I, w- I would accept the medical evidence both nationally and internationally. And um, I think we just need to take that as a given. I can't imagine why any doctors would manipulate any figure so if we accept that as it stands so therefore I think we need to do something and do I think minimum pricing is a way forward yes I think it is but I think the government have made a huge mistake in this and the mistake is that we're on an island and this legislation does not cover the whole of the island of Ireland and I think we all will accept at this stage that sadly those that have addiction will always find a way to feed their addiction and bringing this legislation in before they have agreement in the north to do the same, but wasn't, there, made, wasn't
11: there a difficulty yeah. though, Niall? Because <laughs> there was a delay and they were holding off and holding off, and then eventually decided to move
13: ahead so, of the no, North. I, I accept that, I accept there was some discussions and negotiation going on with the North itself. and I think I'm no expert, I could be wrong, but I think the Northern Ireland Assembly did indicate that at some stage in the next year they will consider this. But my point of this will be that it's driving people back to the days we had five, six years ago when you could not get into the car parks in any of the major supermarket chains in the north, for people going to buy in the north because of the price difference. And sadly for those that have an alcohol addiction, that's what will happen. And I I think the difference here will be they will now both buy like your very first guest because they're travelling some distance to do that. And I think this is going to compound our problem. I think until such time as they could have had agreement across the island of Ireland, this should not have been brought in.
0: Then later, Chris called Katie with his story.
14: Uh, well, I'm only going on nine months sober now. It's not my first time trying to get sober, right. but uh, I'm nine good months nine, now at the moment, and it's very, it's very good. Like, but uh, as he says, there it is hurting everybody. But the government are not. They should concentrate on the people who are going to be hurt most by it. And I feel, and from my own experience, I was a good earner during my working life and retired now, but. I, I wasn't handing up money because of alcohol. And the dearer alcohol gets, people who are on low incomes or social welfare—and that's not to try to detract from them as people—but they are going to hold back more money for their addiction, and that will come straight from housekeeping. And there you have poorer families only getting poorer, which yeah. is not fair, on those that, Very true.
11: That has to be a concern, of course. Yeah, as you say, if. Uh if the person who has the the pay packet is the person with the problem, are they going to um, just simply buy more of the more expensive beer or 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 vodka or or wine or whatever? Um,
14: well, look, the, the more money you have, the the better the quality you will drink. That is that is a certainty. But on any case, no matter what price it is, if if anything goes up, you are just going to take that from your housekeeping and use it to fuel your addiction.
0: Then later, Marion called Katie to talk about her own issues with alcohol.
2: I consider myself a heavy drinker, alcoholic in brackets, because now I'm in my late 60s, but uh, I've been retired for the last year and a half, and um, I'm able to afford uh, four cans of cider and a bottle of wine seven days a week at the moment.
11: So, sorry, so every every day you would drink?
2: Every day, fo- every day. Four, four cans. of strong cider, yeah, and a bottle of good good strong wine as well. And the fact that I'm retired has enabled me to do that because I'm not worrying about uh, being sluggish in the mornings and getting up to deal with people who are maybe terminally ill or whatever. Uh, it was kind of two nights a week before that I'd stay off it, but now it's every night. And I love it. I love my drink. Even though I'm wrecked in the morning, but I still love my jar.
11: And tell, I well, I mean, do, do you it. find you need that? Like you, 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 do you find I do you have to have. Yeah.
2: yeah, I do, yeah. Because at certain times of the day, well, not like, well, certain times of the day, I could have a drink at any time of the day. I could have a cider or I could have, well, it would be a cider if it was early in the day. And I'm saying 12 o'clock in the day. Wine would be for the evening with my dinner. But uh, I, I could drink any time of the day. But the fact that uh, I'm retired and I can afford it, I'm not a millionaire by any means, the retirement has enabled me to do it. And I keep saying every day when I get up and I feel rotten, I say, Jesus, this isn't worth it. But I still do it the next evening. Come five o'clock and say, I'm, tired. I'm for a long walk and I come back. Up. First, anyway, going to be uh, the first thing
11: it open would be a can of cider. And uh, so your your line just where you went slightly off your line there a second ago, oh, Mary. But I think I think you just be if you're talking on the phone, just just uh, be careful with it. But I'm just and are you worried about? Are you do you live on your own, Mary? Do you mind me asking? I do.
2: Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you're you're not worried about dog. your
11: impact on on any other one in the house, but would you be worried about your oh, health?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I am, but I still can't stop. <laughs> Because I've had uh, I've had a few serious health issues. I got touch of to cancer last year, and yeah, I would I would be concerned about it. But it still doesn't stop me.
11: No, and have you have you tried to get help
2: uh, to stop? No, I've never gone to counselling. I've never gone to AA. I've never gone anywhere. Uh, but um, there is alcoholism. There is alcoholism in my family.
11: Right. So you would be—I mean, you—you you said there at the start that you'd class yourself as a heavy drinker, alcoholic in brackets.
2: Yeah,
11: yeah. Uh, you were putting the brackets around alcoholic there
2: yourself. Yeah, yeah, because because I know, uh, like I I know about alcoholics because I've had two, three, two in my family, and I know I know how it works.
11: Right. So you don't I'm, I'm, consi- you don't consider yourself fully alcoholic right now.
2: Well. <laughs> I kind of do, if you like. I do and I don't. I do because I don't want to... I do, but I don't want to accept it. But, uh, like, I'll I'll still have my... uh, At a certain time of the day, I'll still have my jar. And even if I haven't anything in and I have to get dressed up and go out again, shop's only around the corner, I will do that. It's like... um, It's like a magnetic kind of a pull that says, oh, you have to have your cider, you won't be able to... And I would be able to sleep a lot better. And any times I was off to drink, I uh, slept like a log. and I I know I felt better. I mean, there's no saying you wouldn't. But uh, it's not kicking in
11: on this occasion I know a lot of people will have been triggered by by our conversations and our chats yeah. on the programme today so I'm going to give out the numbers for Alcoholic Anonymous uh, Right, okay
2: you, you needn't give it to me because I know it
11: Alright, okay <laughs> uh, But for anyone who doesn't know it it's, it's 018420700 or uh, you can email info at alcoholicsanonymous.ie if you feel
0: uh, you need some help Marion on the live line with Katie Hannon. And if this is an issue that affects you, rte.ie helplines. Now 70 years old and abseiling, Mary Lynch was talking to Baz Maui about celebrating her big day with a bit of a challenge.
8: From skydiving to whitewater rafting, anyone who has uh, watched myself and my mother uh, on our adventures in 50 ways to to kill your mammy will understand why I had to speak to my next guest, who's an abseiling granny of nine, Mary Lynch. Mary, how's it going? Good morning, Beth. Now listen, you caught me just on the right day. I'm missing me, Mammy, and then you appear like 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 a, a beacon of light for me. Um, <laughs> before we tackle your more extreme behaviour, which I'm uh, I love, <laughs> I'd love you to tell me tell me about your real passion in life, which is social dancing.
15: Social dancing, yes. Um, not in, in, as you can understand, no dancing at the moment. But uh, when I took up social dancing, I just loved it. Getting out, meeting friends, listening to the music, dancing. Um, When did you start? When did you start dancing, Mary? I started... I started about 12 years ago. Right. My husband was dead 11 years at that time.
8: Your husband was dead 11 years? Oh, God, I'm sorry to hear that.
15: Yeah, and I just decided, look, I'm going to do something, get out and do something. And... um, where I live here in Lina, there's a, a weekly paper called The Guardian and uh, dance classes um, were advertising that. So I went to it and I didn't look back after that.
8: And tell me, this, how, uh, it keeps you fit, does it, the dancing?
15: Oh, it, it keeps you fit. It keeps you, you know, get, even getting ready to go out and meeting friends um chatting as well, yeah, like you its know, a social I thing my own. as well its yeah, a social thing, yeah, definitely a social thing, uh, brilliant, it was brilliant now, and I enjoyed every night I was out, I enjoyed how
8: many nights it. would you go out, dancing <laughs> go on. <laughs>
15: Well, I went. I started off maybe two nights a week, and then, some, then there was another time there was three nights. And
8: oh, you and were flying!
15: Three, there was, yeah, there was a yeah, there was a few nights in recent in recent years. Now uh, we say pre COVID, I went maybe four nights. It would depend on what would be on. Yeah. See, sometimes you'd have a week, again, and sometimes you must. You
8: must have then. You, you must have missed it when COVID happened. That must have been a big hit. <gasps> oh, was my it? God, oh my
15: God, this. Oh my God, it was it was unreal. Yeah, yeah. Ah. Yeah, but look, yeah, as I see, look, I suppose we were all safe and um, we didn't think it was going to last as long, naturally enough, the same as everybody else. And then when you're living on your own, it's a different thing. And you see, I'm not the only one, so many more like me.
8: And you've nine grandkids as well. Nine
15: grandkids, yeah. That's
8: tough being separated for them as well, Oh my
15: God, I tell you now, I suppose um, looking out the window and they're waving in at me. And as I say, like many, many more. That was very, very hard. Yeah. And my own, I've three in family myself and they was come and bring stuff to the door with, say, the first lockdown. Yeah. And that was so hard. But look, as I say, we're, we're at the other side, hopefully. And they can... I can I, they visit me now in their turn. They all don't come together because of...
8: Of course. But, but you had a big 70th before COVID kicked off, didn't you? <laughs> Tell us about your 70th. This, this oh, sounds like a right, Hoolie.
15: The 70th, um, well, of course, well, I was after doing an abseil from Croke Park. Um, I love the way three. you dropped
8: that in, like Forrest Gump. Just, oh. just throw it in there like it's <laughs> a normal.
15: Three years previous to that, yeah. I was my sister done it with me. And then after that, then, there was another one coming up the year that I was seventeen. So there was another abseil in Croke Park. And then I decided, because of the social dancing, instead of having a party, I'd have a dance for the most of your own.
8: For Motor Neuron?
15: Yes. What yes. was the
8: connection with Motor Neuron then,
15: Well, Mary? our mother died of Motor Neuron. Okay. Um, yeah, in 1993. Right. And um, we, my sisters now, they all live in Cork. And they always done different uh, fundraising. They've done tea mornings and they used to withdraw Easter and Christmas and... You know, they organise all that. They were great down there. And then um, I always felt that when I'd go down to those, that all the work was done before I went down. <laughs> right, so right. then this came around, and then um, then my niece, Julie... Julie, she done the abseil with me uh, just before my seventeenth. How did you did. find
8: the abseil? Because I'll tell you what, I throw you out of a plane quicker than I get you to do an abseil. <laughs> an abseil is very tough, making yourself hang back and go down and all. Like it's quite physical.
15: Well, I tell you something now, Baz. You should try it sometime.
8: Oh, I've done because, it. Oh, listen, Oh, you're, have you? oh well, many, I, many, but I haven't. Many dolls. They're well, great. I,
15: yeah, what I find was getting to the top. Of Croke Park and the Smithfield Tower, there recently was harder than, than coming down.
8: Right, the climb I'm, up, yeah. yeah. yeah, the yeah. Climb yeah. Up. yeah. You're probably yeah. so exhausted when you get to the top, you're like, I'm not walking back down this,
0: I'd rather oh abseil down, down right this. Way. Yeah.
15: <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, I didn't mind the, the abseil at all.
0: Mary Lynch with Baz Mary in the morning. New runners check, headband check. Leg warmers, check. You're ready to get back to fitness. Or are you? From today with Claire Byrne How to Avoid Injuries in Your New Regime for January.
7: It's a week into January and many of us are settling into our New Year's resolutions. Gyms are full and our streets, roads and parks are populated with joggers and runners. But a warning, if you fail to prepare properly, you could find yourself injured by the end of the month and all of the healthy plans go out the window. So how can we avoid this? Well, hopefully with the answers, I'm joined on the line by Jenny Branigan, Chartered Physiotherapist at Total Physio in Sandyford in Dublin. Happy New Year to you, Jenny.
16: Hello, Claire. Happy New Year to you.
7: I'm sure towards the end of January is a busy time for you every year, is it?
16: Every year. And it happens every year, despite all of these warnings that we give out. And we talk so much about this as a profession. And yet it happens every year. So it's really, I mean, I hope this year we might be able to get the message out in a different way to be able to help people just avoid that because it's very soul destroying for people who really are making a good effort to try and yeah, get fit.
7: You see, for many people, though, you've got two sluggish weeks where you're sort of doing nothing, maybe the odd walk and you're stuffing yourself on the sofa. Not everybody, but some people. And the ten temp, temptation then is to go out and say, right, I'm now going to run for three miles and bang, that's where the problem starts.
16: That's exactly it. Everybody wants a quick result and the difficulty is is that a lot of people are not just dealing with two sedentary weeks over Christmas. I think people need to be realistic when they look back on the end of the year that they've had because often when we do question people when they're injured about how active they've been in the lead up to it, we find that it's been a longer period of time that they haven't been active but because it's January they put that plan in motion but they're not being realistic about what their body is actually capable of.
7: So what sort of plan should you put in place before you start?
16: you need to look at what your previous levels of activity have been you need to look at how frequently you've been active and mobile and what type of activity you've been doing and if that's been fairly regular then what you're looking at doing is just trying to increase that gradually so that you're able to aim for maybe a 5k or a half marathon or whatever the case may be so, so difficulty is sorry go on
7: no go you go ahead
16: The difficulty is if it's somebody who hasn't been fit for quite a while and then they're coming to it where they're saying, well, you know, I used to be able to run a 5K, but when they realistically look at it, they haven't run that 5K maybe in three or four years. That's where the problem lies. So if they've maybe got caught up with the stress of family life and maybe pushing their career, people are working from home now much more than they used to, so they're not as generally mobile day to day. And if they decide then that they want to put a plan in place for January, they're not taking those considerations into account. So they're not doing that gradual build up whereby they try to walk and they build up to maybe 40 or 50 minutes of a good fast paced walk where they're out of breath, their heart rate is increased, and then it's only a short push to get into a jog. They try and go straight into that jog and run that three miles as you mentioned. So 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 are
7: are you saying then that you should consider yourself to be a beginner?
16: If you haven't been exercising for a couple of months, you absolutely should be beginning, beginning it all again. You shouldn't be thinking, well, two years ago I was able to run a 5K, so I'm going to go out now and try and run it. And depending on the age that you are, again, you need to bear that in mind. So if you're 25 and you haven't run around for two or three months, that's going to be a lot easier to make those gains. But if you're in your 40s, you need to bear that in mind, that if you haven't been active, you have to build yourself up to be able to push yourself at that higher level okay. and it's the gradual piece that needs to be really at the forefront of your planning.
0: Well Jenny Brannigan Chartered Physiotherapist at Total Physio and today with Claire Byrne And in the morning, Baz was taking a look at the dating world and those telltale signs.
8: I was watching Channel 4 the other night and I saw there's a new dating show with Davina McCall um, called The Language of Love. There was an article in the paper about it. And basically it's these English and Spanish people, but they don't s- speak the same language. And uh, I saw this article in the paper. Uh, Behavioural expert Judy James believes uh, people communicate their interests through small, subtle, physical cues. Um <laughs> For men, one telltale sign is peacocking, uh, which uh, men do by chest puffing. Yeah, chest puffing, uh, leg splaying. I'm not sure what leg splaying is. Small crotch pumps. Don't think you can do that. You can't do small crotch. If you see someone doing the small crotch, doesn't they're not telltale signs? That's leave the room. Um, the eye flick. If he is only after your body, his eyes will keep flicking down. Yeah, obviously they're going to flick down to places they shouldn't be looking at. Um, next, the asymmetrical smile. Asymmet- so a polite smile is usually symmetrical and has an even shape with both corners of the mouth turned up. This all sounds incredibly sleazy. Let me fast forward to women. Wrist bearing. Oh, Revealing the inside of the wrist via a face touch or hair preening. Well, that, um, that's can't be right. A drop in vocal tone with women. Really? Let me read that. Although women can get a higher vocal pitch to attract attention, in the early stages of flirting, the vocal tone tone will often drop lower. Come here, you. Come here, you. I
9: like you.
0: Hazash maui. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.